It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get right through now, it. Right the COVID-19 vaccine are available to millions of Americans and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people, and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner, and we got a good one in store today, at least an interesting one. We're going to hit, oh, several different uh, topics, as we typically do. We have coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour an expert in antimicrobial resistance. We're going to find out what that is and why uh, the uh, World Health Organization um, considers it a global health and development threat. Anyway, um, Tim Starzl will join me by phone during the third half of our three-hour tour. And uh, coming up in the second hour... We're going to talk with uh, award-winning NYU historian Ada Fair, Ph.D. She is the author of a new book called Cuba, an American History. And I had scheduled, um, originally I, w- I was planning to talk with uh, either Teresa Hurley or uh, Kelly Party, um, or both, from Catholic Charities. They have an event coming up this Thursday, uh, September 16th. Uh, It's their second annual charity event fundraiser, 
and it's also being billed as cheers to 80 years of uh, service from Catholic Charities of uh, Shiawassee and Genesee County. Anyway, uh, for some reason we're not connected, and it could be because there have been power outages in the area, or it could be just a calendar mix-up. But instead what we'll do is uh, we'll go to a uh, different interview that I actually had scheduled for tomorrow's show, but we'll go ahead and hear that today uh, in this uh, first hour. We're going to talk with, and this is fascinating, um, we're going to talk about some some of the developments in lung transplantation and um, the impact of COVID-19 on lung transplantation with um, thoracic surgeon from Northwestern Medicine, Dr. Calvin Lung. Yeah, that's right. He does lung transplants and his name is Dr. Lung. It, it, uh, it sounds like a uh, reality medical TV show, but... Uh, but anyway, it's a pretty interesting conversation, and Dr. Calvin Lung joined me by phone here a week or so ago. And like I said, I had planned to air this tomorrow, but instead we'll, uh, we'll hear from Dr. Lung today, and uh, that's coming up straight ahead. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, and my guest this hour is from uh, Northwestern Medicine, where um, one year ago, surgeons at Northwestern Medicine performed the first double lung transplant on a COVID-19 patient in the U.S. Lung transplantation is up as one might imagine because of the damage done to lungs by COVID-19 and we're going to talk about that and a new uh, piece of equipment uh, called lungs in a box we're going to find out what that's all about with uh, my guest who is uh, a thoracic surgeon at Northwestern Medicine Dr. Calvin Lung. Calvin welcome to the show. Hi Tom thank you very much for having me. And, and it, Forgive me, but I have to ask, is it just a coincidence that you're a thoracic surgeon named Dr. Lung? <laughs> uh, 100% coincidence, but I found it to be quite useful, and patients uh, remember that name very easily. I would, I would think, uh, you know, it sounds almost like the name of a reality uh, medical TV show, Dr. Lung. Um, but tell me about the effect of um, COVID-19 on the, the, on the lungs and, and how that's impacting lung transplants. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the effects have been enormous, um, almost uh, paradigm shifting in that we have never really seen an infectious disease that has um, impacted the lungs in such a way in, a, in forever. Um, you know, people would get influenza before or other types of lung infections, and they almost always 
well, if they don't recover, um, you know, they, they don't get this long-lasting lung damage that we're seeing with COVID. Um, they, they may pass away, but um, this is something very, very different uh, and very new. Um, when they get acute infections, the lungs uh, become very damaged, uh, and it's very difficult to treat when they get to that very severe stage. Um, and even when they recover, we see that the damage persists. Um, and, and lungs don't really rec uh, recover completely. And so um, it's become a, a phenomenon where uh, we do have to do uh, more than what we used to do, which is treat with um, antimicrobial agents. Um, we have been doing transplant for these because the lungs are just not recovering back to where they were before the, the infection. But the large number of people who have contracted COVID-19 includes potential lung donors, doesn't it? That's, that's exactly right. Um, and so one of our concerns is um, we already have a shortage of lung organs in general, uh, even prior to COVID. Um, and that's why all this technology has been developed. Um, and it was developed before COVID. Um, but with uh, you know, an infection that has affected a, an enormous population uh, of the American population. Um, we are concerned that in the future, even people who may have had mild disease or um, moderate disease that recover and they go back to work and they go back to living their lives, that there's some type of lung, there's some amount of lung damage in their in their lungs that are just not recognized. Um, and then moving forward. Uh, if they ultimately become, for whatever reason, a donor, a potential donor, um, are those lungs going to be good enough now to be used for lung transplantation to give to someone with end-stage lung disease? Um, and that's a big concern because uh, if they're not good enough um, or if there's concerns about using them, then we do lose a substantial uh, a number of our uh, potential donors, um, especially now given that uh, the infection seems to be affecting younger and healthier people um, with these variants. Um, then those are the people that generally serve as, you know, good donors um, for for transplantation. What kind of um, how how much damage can the lungs take before they're no longer viable for someone uh, for transplantation in a patient that has uh, end-stage lung disease? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It's something that's it's not so easily measured. Um, we have a number of things that we look at when we're assessing an organ um, for uh, transplantation, um, uh, a number of parameters in terms of their imaging on, on x-rays and CT scans, their ability to exchange gas, so the oxygen levels in the blood. Um, we look at whether there's infection in the lungs or not. But when we see that the lungs themselves have damage in them, any type of scarring, it just, even if they're working decently well at exchanging gas, it still kind of puts up a red flag. Um, because it's, it's, as you can imagine, when we get these offers um, for lung donation, uh, we don't have a lot of time to be able to look at them. It's not like we can do a lot of tests or biopsies or, or things like that uh, to be able to fully evaluate the lungs. We kind of have to use a short, a, a short list of things um, that, that are provided to us in, in a very short amount of time, and we have to make a decision. Um, and... Um, we, I don't think we know the answer as to how much damage um, 
leads to lungs that are not usable anymore. And traditionally, we wanted to use almost perfect lungs, lungs that really don't have any issues with them. And over time, we've learned that because we also have this shortage of organs that we cannot you know, we can't always just pick perfect lungs. We have extended criteria now for, for what makes a good donor or, or an adequate donor. Uh, and those criteria, that, that criteria is constantly changing um, because different institutions use different criteria as well. Um, but we also want to expand it so that we can give more people a chance at lung transplantation. Um, and I think with this new pandemic and, and probably the long-term results from this, we're going to continue to learn a lot more about what we can and cannot accept. Um, but, but that's still something that, that we're, we're learning about um, and, and uh, working on to, to, to get more information on. More about COVID, lungs, and lung transplantation with Dr. Calvin Lung, thoracic surgeon at Northwestern Medicine, is straight ahead. I have to lay low for a while So I'll be staying here inside It's too dangerous out in the world I'll see you on the other side I'm in my quarantine In my little place too high My heart is aching and I'm missing you I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side We're all in for a bumpy ride Without you here, I hold on to this phone so tight, and I whisper you a goodnight kiss. I'll see you on the other side. When I crawl out of my cage, when the world is purified, I will find you, and I promise this: I'll see you on the other side. The other side, and I'll meet you with arms open wide. I'll see you on the other side. I'll see you on the other side. I'll see you on the other side, and I'll meet you with arms open wide. I'll see you on the other side. The Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner To listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs>
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Lions. Dan Sterling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions and you know the material and you, and you care about it and it's, uh, it's, that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I'm willing to admit that. Hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. And where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County. Where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. 
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More about COVID, lungs, and lung transplantation with Dr. Calvin Lung, thoracic surgeon at Northwestern Medicine, is straight ahead. Well, when you talk about the, um, you know, looking at lungs that are prospective transplant um, organs, you have a very limited amount of time that you can examine to make sure that those lungs that you're planning to use are in fact usable and that's where this lungs in a box comes into play how long has that been around and what does that um that equipment what is it and and how does it help in that process yeah that's that's exactly right um the technology has actually been around for quite some time, I would say uh, decades now. The technology is different in its current form, and there are different forms of it as well as as different people have come up um, with, uh, you know, modified ways of doing it. But the idea of trying to perfuse the lungs um, as we as we wait, um, say, bringing the organ from the, the, the procurement center back to the hospital, um, where we're going to do the transplant, um, that has always been a concern uh, for what we call uh, ischemic time, where the lung doesn't have uh, blood supply, and and we think that the longer that time is, the 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 more likely that the lungs are going to not do as well, um, and so people have constantly tried to look for ways to improve that, and one of the ways is initially to to put a patient's blood through the lungs and continue a circuit, just like we would go on heart-lung bypass for, for, for major cardiac surgery or something along those lines, um, try, to basic, try to replicate uh, um, the human environment so that the lungs continue to function well. And so the idea has been around a long time. But it's, it wasn't probably until um, the early or late 2000s, early, um, earlier uh, in the 2010s, that the technology was more published um, and become more recognized as something that we can use readily uh, uh, around the world. Um, there, again, there's different forms of technology, but the, the current technology that we are going to use uh, and that we're most familiar with is uh, the idea of putting these lungs in, in a box after they've come back from a, a transplant center and perfusing it um, or running a solution through it um, that has no cells and it's just a, a preservation solution. Um, and what that does is it allows us to uh, do a number of things. We can measure some parameters on the lungs to make sure they're actually working well. We can even give medications or do therapeutic things where we can improve the quality of the lung. Um, and so that technology has been probably more widely used in the last decade, but we see that as becoming more and more important, like you mentioned, um, to give us time to fully assess the quality of lungs, especially if there's going to be a more um, ongoing concern uh, when we see patients who are donors who've had, for example, COVID-19 previously, and there are some, there's some concern that there is damage to the lungs, but to what degree and whether they're usable. This technology is really going to allow us to make sure that the organs we're putting in into patients are, are something that if they're good, good quality and that they're going to really help our patients. Um, in, in February, um, 
Northwestern uh, surgeons performed the first COVID-to-COVID double lung transplant. Um, how useful was this uh, this this lungs in a box in in assessing those lungs, making sure they were as healthy as they could be, and and determining how healthy they were before using them in the transplant. Yeah. So actually, that that technology, the, the lung in the box, was not used for that uh, assessment. Um, it's more of a, uh, something that moving forward. Uh, we're going to do those lungs were under uh, obviously a, a lot more scrutiny because like you said it, it was the first one that we know of that was done and so um it it wasn't uh something that we wanted to assess on a lung in a box we actually assessed it quite thoroughly um uh at the time of transplantation when or at the time of procurement when the organs were still um in the donor um we, so the technology wasn't used for that specific transplantation, um, but certainly we made absolutely clear that, that those lungs were usable. Um, we checked the lungs multiple times to make sure that there was no COVID left in them. Um, we did uh, deep samples into the deep airways uh, to test for that. Um, and we also, yeah, these lungs were also far, uh, or the donor was really far out from the infection. So that was another criteria we used because um, they were likely to have cleared the virus um, months out. And, and what it, we ultimately ended up doing... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just, just going to ask um, if there are cases of, of COVID when you're looking at these uh, donor lungs where the lungs may not have been infected um, or affected even though the patient had COVID-19. Yeah. Um, exactly. The donor, I mean. So, so for, yeah, so for those lungs, and then they looked almost like normal lungs to us. Um, so they, it was, so it wouldn't really be the lungs that we kind of see a little bit of abnormality and we're concerned about. Those lungs were essentially normal lungs, but just in the donor who, who had COVID before. Um, and we actually did do very thorough biopsies of it. Um, where we took some samples and, and we and we took the time to have our pathologist uh, and also uh, the pathologist at the local procurement center take a look at the biopsies and make sure there was no scarring or long-lasting damage. Um, and, and so we did spend a lot of time evaluating the lungs and making sure that they were um, good to use. Um, what the technology now will allow us to do is is kind of make it more logistically um, efficient to do that because. Um, if you can imagine where we have to do all these extra tests and all this extra evaluation, it does take time, um, and it does um, kind of slow down the efficiency of also all the other organs that are being um, evaluated. Um, and so the lung in the box really gives us that time outside of the body where we don't have to necessarily delay the uh, procurement process. Uh, we can actually procure the lungs, bring them back to Northwestern, put them on the box, uh, and, and then assess them. And that gives us, you know, many hours more, um, but also allows us to take biopsies, really look at it very carefully. Uh, and this is, would be for more lungs that are maybe slightly more marginal where there could be some damage, but we're not 100% sure. Um, but in that first case, we really, we wanted to use lungs that almost, that, that, that looked essentially normal, except for the fact that there was a history of COVID. 
So it was a bit of a different situation, and I think um, moving forward, um, it's more going to be if it becomes a more um, pervasive uh, uh, process uh, where we're going to be doing this more frequently um, and we need to do more regular evaluations, um, the technology allows us to do that in a more efficient way. Are there simi- is there similar technology for other kinds of organ transplant, and do different organs have a different, this is kind of a clumsy term, but different shelf life? Yeah, def- definitely different organs have different shelf life. And, and there, there are different perfusion systems um, that, that allow other organs to, like kidneys, for example, have long been organs that actually, wait, for lack of a better word, a better shelf life. Um, they can actually uh, stay perfused uh, and, and running for much longer. Um, and and by shelf more. life, Calvin, we're talking about the amount of time that the organ is still viable for use after it's been procured. That's correct. Yeah, after it's outside the body um, and no longer being perfused with blood through the patient's um, um, is there a complicated is there a complicated medical term for that that I won't be able to pronounce, <laughs> or or do we have we to stick with shelf it, life? <laughs> we generally call it ischemic time. Okay. Um, yeah, meaning that ischemia is just a, a word meaning lack of blood supply. Um, so there's warm ischemia time and there's cold ischemia time. So cold ischemia time is when the the organ is on ice and then warm ischemia time is when it's um, not on ice. So, for example, the time where we've put into the the, the recipient patient uh, and we're we're sewing the organ in and that's warm, uh, no longer on ice, but it hasn't received the blood supply yet. Um, So, yeah, ischemia time would be maybe a better term to use in shelf life. But, um, yeah, so... I guess to answer your question, different organs are definitely differently, uh, have different sensitivities to the ischemia time. Um, kidneys do well with longer ischemia time, whereas uh, hearts on the other end, they have very short ischemia time. Uh, and so the technology to try to bridge hearts to the recipients is actually more in the transport process um, where they put them on a pump. Uh, it's not that frequently used, but because it's a cumbersome process, because if you can imagine bringing huge machines on planes and, um, and bringing them to the procurement center, it's not that it requires a lot of personnel and it requires troubleshooting of the technology. Um, so we, we are still kind of limited by that. Um, and, and putting them on ice is still sometimes the, the quickest way to, to do this. Uh, and lungs are kind of in between, um, you know, heart and kidneys. Uh, lungs do okay with ischemia time, but at the same time, uh, we still like to keep that short, like something, something in the six to eight hours range, uh, if possible. Um, uh, but lungs in general are, are, are quite sensitive to uh, um, the outside environment, and, and it's the organ that probably um, does the least well um, after transplantation. Uh, and so we try to do everything we can to optimize how well lungs are functioning. With the scope of, of COVID-19 and the number of people who've been uh, impacted by it, Permanent lung damage is is one of the uh, sort of lingering effects of COVID-19, and that's caused um, lung transplantation to be on the rise. Um, can, do you have any any sense? And I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but but how 
how many more transplants need to be done that that are caused by covid what does it do to the lungs and and how prevalent has that become yeah that's a great question and unfortunately i don't think we have the data to know that yet um i, I mean we it seems like forever we've been in this pandemic and i but in terms of the long lasting damage we don't have that much information what we have seen is a bit of transitioning. So, um, like you, you mentioned earlier, a year ago or more, a, bit, a year and a bit ago, that was the first lung transplant done for COVID-19. Um, and since then, we've done about 25, 26 uh, transplants for COVID. And we have seen a bit of a transition. So, in the early parts, we were really only transplanting people who were very acutely sick, meaning that they are still have not an active infection, but that their their organs haven't really at all recovered from the infection. So these patients were the ones who um, ended up on a ventilator, and the ventilator was not enough, and then we had to put them on something called ECMO, uh, which is essentially a, a, a bypass, a lung, a lung uh, rescue uh, machine um, where we allow the blood to circulate out of the body into an oxygenator to oxygenate and put it back into the body. And so these were really the sickest patients. Um, and we were, in the beginning, transplanting mostly these patients because there was really no way for them to recover at all. Um, they were not able to get off this artificial lung machine. Um, and the really only way was to get them new lungs. And so that was the first uh, good number of transplants that we did. What, but over time, we're now... Yeah, what, sorry, what, um, what does the, the COVID-19 virus do to lungs? Yeah, so it, it depends on the stage. Um, similar to other bad infections, um, it causes a lot of inflammation in the lungs, um, and, and the lungs become filled with uh, fluid, um, then, then the inflammation over time starts to erode at the lung tissue itself. And so we've seen lots of different issues in terms of um, either lungs are just now filled uh, with uh, fluid or uh, pus or infection and people get pneumonias on top of the fact that they've had COVID because um, they've been on a ventilator for so long, their immune system is, is pretty much shot. Um, so they get that. We also see that the lung damage um, initially can sometimes be uh, that the lung tissue starts to die uh, and that they form large cavities. Um, they can lead to bleeding in the lungs. Um, patients with COVID often have bleeding issues or clotting issues, and they can get blood clots in the lungs as well. Um, a lot of our patients who are on this lung bypass machine have bleeding issues because the lung bypasser could predispose them or, or makes them more susceptible to bleeding. Um, so we see that. But uh, over time, um, what we then see is even when patients start to recover and when they come off the lung bypass machine, the lungs, after the acute inflammation, um, starts to develop scar, um, what we call fibrosis. Mm -hmm. And it's, imagine if you cut your hand and, you know, or cut something and if a thick kind of uh, scar forms over top of it, it's not, it doesn't have the same elasticity, it doesn't have the same, um, it's not as pretty as it, the original uh, skin. And similarly in the lungs, that's what's happening is that it becomes more scarred and functioning lung tissue. Uh, and so we see fibrosis that's not, not that dissimilar to um, what we call pulmonary fibrosis before COVID, 
when people would have lung disease that for some reason um, had inflammation or, or whatever other process um, that ultimately leads to scarring of the lung and the lung tissues themselves are just, it doesn't do the work of exchanging gas anymore. Um, and, and so that's what we're starting to see is that people are coming in um, requiring oxygen. They're not as bad as being on an artificial lung machine, but they're requiring oxygen and the lungs are just not recovering any further and they're, and they're stuck. Um, and so that's when we start to consider uh, transplant for patients who are not acutely ill, um, but that they, their quality of life is impacted significantly. And a lot of these people are young. They're young people who want to go back to work, who want to go back to living their lives and but, but they, they, they can't because they're, they're on oxygen, and every time they try to do a lot, they, they become short of breath. And, and so um, you know, to gain their quality of life back, lung transplant is, is one of the solutions to that. And they really, really don't have any other solutions at this point for that specific lung fibrosis. As surgical techniques and technology continue to evolve, what do you envision the future of lung treatment and transplant looking like? Yeah, um, so lung transplant has a, has a, has a difficult history. Um, we were not very good at doing lung transplants uh, several decades back, but certainly um, we have become a lot better at doing them. And, and uh, it's one of those organs that, that it's still um, fraught with complications, um, yeah, we only do about 2,500 of these in the United States um, compared to the, uh, maybe in the tens of thousands for other organs. Um, and and it, it, does, it, it probably is an organ that doesn't do as well as any of the other organs in the long term. And so um, surgical technique uh, is very important. Um, one of the things that we try to do at Northwestern is we try to minimize the use of uh, cardiopulmonary bypass. Um, we try to minimize the use of blood thinners um, and, and use other ways to make sure that there's no clotting in the circuits uh, that allow us to do the operation. Um, and we've seen that to be very helpful. Uh, we've seen that patients don't have as much bleeding complications, which is always a big worry when we do these types of um, transplantations. Um, and uh, certainly uh, using things like lung in the box will allow us to get better organs um, so that in the long term they'll hopefully last longer and benefit our patients for a longer period of time. Um, and because, you know, uh, we, we are dealing with younger and younger patients who may need transplants, especially because of this pandemic, and um, we do want them to live a, a long time. Um, and so... Uh, having a good organ um, that has been assessed very properly uh, uh, is going to be very important. Um, not that it wasn't important before, but I think it, it becomes more and more important when you're starting to transplant people in their 40s or 50s as opposed to people in their 60s and 70s. Um, uh, so uh, the, all those techn the, the, the technologies are always evolving. Um, the surgical technique um, is always evolving, and, and we're constantly trying to figure out ways to minimize complications around a time of surgery uh, and to hopefully have the organs last as long as possible. And this is kind of a morbid question, but, but how long is that likely to be, even in a very successful uh, lung transplant? You mean how long the organs will last? Yeah. Yeah. So the five-year survival, meaning how many people are going to be alive in five years after their transplant for lungs, 
is in the, I would say, 50 to 60% range, uh, may go up to the 70% range. Um, so, you know, it, it is, um, so half the people, well, uh, a little bit more than half the people will be alive uh, after lung transplantation after five years. Um, so it's still something that we could definitely work on and, and make better. Um, it's just lungs is one of those organs that when you're, it's the only organ, in fact, in the body that's constantly exposed to the outside environment. Now you're constantly breathing in bacteria or virus or right. um, pollution. Uh, and so when you, we have to suppress your immune system in order for us to make the organs or prevent rejection for, for the lungs, um, it, it becomes a tricky balance because then your immune system is not as good as fighting off all these bad things that are coming into the lungs all the time. Uh, and so it, I, that, that we think is one of the reasons why lungs are very difficult to maintain or, or lung transplants are difficult to maintain healthy for a long period of time. Well, this is uh, absolutely fascinating and becoming um, something that, that people should learn more about because the uh, because of the pandemic and its impact on lungs. Lungs is going to get you know, higher on the list of uh, potential transplant scenarios because of COVID and, and something that uh, I appreciate you spending time talking uh, with me and the listeners about this morning. My guest is uh, Dr. Calvin Lung. And no, that's not a stage name, Dr. Lung, who does uh, thoracic surgery at Northwestern Medicine. But um, Calvin, I always give guests... Uh, an opportunity to let listeners know where they might find some good resources to learn more about this if if they or a, a friend or family member um, might be needing information about this. Where are some good uh, places to go for more information? Uh, yeah, I think the information is constantly changing, and I think one of the best ways to get more information is to um, either speak to uh, a provider or, or a lung transplant surgeon. And I think one of the best ways to do that is uh, on the Northwestern Medicine website. Um, and if you look up the Division of Thoracic Surgery, you'll see lots of information about lung transplant. And we're one of the centers um, kind of at the forefront of this um, in this pandemic. Obviously, the first center to do the COVID lung transplant, the first center to maybe put COVID lungs into a lung transplant recipient. And so we're constantly trying to push the boundary to benefit our patients. Uh, we're transplanting very sick patients uh, and giving them the benefit of the doubt. Uh, and so I, one of the best ways to come is really, uh, if you want to learn more about this, um, reach out to us, uh, Northwestern Medicine website, Division of Thoracic Surgery. Um, there's lots of information up there on what we're doing uh, in the field of lung transplantation. Um, and I think that's probably the best way to get the most up-to-date uh, and constantly evolving um, knowledge about this. Um, well, Dr. Calvin uh, Lung, thank you again for spending this time with me and the listeners this morning, and keep up the good work. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you giving us the time to share what we're doing, and uh, hopefully we can uh, help more patients, Tom. All right. Take care. Again, that's uh, Dr. Calvin Lung. He is a thoracic surgeon at Northwestern Medicine, and we've been talking about COVID, lungs, and lung transplantation. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. From the Tom Sumner Show.
This is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Start your weekend early with the Tom Sumner Program every Friday live at 11. We turn the spotlight on the world of arts and entertainment featuring artists from music, TV, and the movies. Catch everything from the rich local talent pool in and around Flint and Genesee County to up-and-coming stars of stage and screen, plus legends from New York and Hollywood. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zondrick. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Start your weekend right. Go to 11 Fridays on the Tom Sumner Program. Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the back. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. 
The Tom Sumner Program.com. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Ladies and gentlemen, Philip Rapp's creation, The Bickerson. After seven years of cycloid insomnia, or slugger's disease, John Bickerson had finally consented to allow Dr. Hershey to relieve his condition. In room 113 at the General Hospital, Mrs. Bickerson watches anxiously as a surgical nurse ministers to poor John, who is suffering an attack the night before the operation. Listen. Oh, it's like being married to a steam shovel nurse. Cough's normal. Enjoy yourself, dear. Dr. Hershey's waiting for you in the corridor, Mrs. Bickerson. Oh, hello, doctor. Is he resting? I gave him a sedative. That'll quiet him down. Well, he isn't very quiet. Oh, well, actually, I could have done the operation in my office. It's so trivial. I won't be in surgery over 15 minutes, and there's absolutely no danger whatsoever. Will it hurt him? Not the slightest. All we do is take a stitch in his palate and shorten his uvula. I hate to bring this up now, Dr. Hershey, but how much will it cost? The fee will be $50 with the anesthetic. How much is it without the anesthetic? I would say about $40. Would there be any discomfort if he didn't have an anesthetic? Not for me, there wouldn't. I wouldn't advise the operation without it. And you're sure he'll be cured when you're through? Oh, practically certain. Well, it's almost midnight now. I'll do his case first thing about seven. He just needs a good night's rest. Well, I'll just stay a little longer. Good night. Call the floor nurse if you need anything. Oh, I will. I hope that pill's quieted him down. I'm sure that isn't doing him any good. John! John, wake up! What? What's the matter, Blanche? Uh, what's the matter, huh? I put the cat out, I locked the windows, I left a note for the milkman, and I, and I hung up... John, uh, we're in the hospital. What for? Is somebody sick? No, you're going to have an operation. Dr. Hershey's going to shorten your uvula in the morning. Well, then what did you wake me up now for? Well, you were snoring, and I was afraid you'd wear it off before you got a chance to operate. You've been snoring steadily for three hours. Don't you suppose I want to sleep, too? You're not sleeping here, are you? Yes, I am. It costs another $5 to put another cart in the room. I... And I intend to use it. I can't get one night's sleep. Where's my nightgown? Not even in the hospital. I don't understand why you have to have an operation to cure your snoring. I didn't want it. You've been working on me for seven years to do this. I'm beginning to think it was a waste of money. I could have used that $40. I'm still walking around in a short dress. What are you going on about? Tomorrow I'll be walking around with a short uvula. Don't be so crabby. I'm not crabby. I'm just sleepy. Why don't you stop fiddling with that mirror and put out the lights? I have to get undressed, don't I? Well, take your dress off. Why are you plucking your eyebrows at this time of night? I'm not plucking my eyebrows. I'm taking off my false eyelashes. False eyelashes? I didn't even know you had bald eyelids. My eyelids are not bald. 
It's just that my lashes are short, and they don't bring out my eyes. Lots of women use false eyelashes. Well, throw them away. You don't need anything to bring out your eyes. Really? Really. I'm satisfied with the way they bulge now. What kind of a remark is that? Oh, hurry up, Blanche. I'm groggy. Blanche, what on earth are you taking out of your hair? It's a rat. A what? A roll of false hair. I have to wear it for the new hairstyles. My own hair is too thin with a pompadour. Oh, darn it, I can't get out of this dress. Blanche, what are those things? Haven't you ever seen shoulder pads before? Oh, I've never heard of such a thing. Your eyelashes are on the dresser, your hair is in the drawer, and your shoulders are on the chairs. What about it? That's you all over, Blanche. No one can think of more ways to spend money. Are you ready for bed now? Yes, dear. I'm ready for bed. Shall I crank yours up a little? No, put out the lights. Oh, I wanted to glance at the paper first. You go ahead and go to sleep. I can't sleep with the lights on. I left my sleep shade at home. Well, I won't be a minute. No one would believe this. In six hours, they're going to carve me to pieces. I'm supposed to rest, and here I'm... Shh! I can't concentrate with you mumbling. (laughs) There's certainly a lot of activity in Washington. What's all this tax reduction talk? Talk. Listen to what's... Blanche, I read the paper, every word of it. Read it to yourself. Don't be so disagreeable. Dr. Hershey told me to keep you occupied so you wouldn't think about the operation. All I'm thinking about is sleep. Oh, that's a good boy. You mustn't get nervous. No. I see the stock market is going up. That's fine. We have some stock, haven't we? Didn't you get some stock last year? Ten shares. Kentucky Salt Petermann's preferred stock. My brother got you in on the ground floor, didn't he? Where is that now? In the ground. I can't even find it listed on the stock page. Look in the help wanted column. Are you getting relaxed, dear? No, now I'm starting to get nervous. I'm worried about you, John. If anything happened to you on the operating table, it would all be my fault. So, you know what I think? We'll, uh, sneak out, huh? No. I think you should make out a will. Make out a will? I thought you were worried about me. Well, you don't want to leave me at the mercies of all those grasping relatives of yours, do you? The minute you drop dead, they'll... Don't talk like that. Can't you say pass on or something like that? Well, you always say drop dead. That's only when I'm talking to your brother. You could be a little more delicate when you're discussing wills. Why? Because you make it sound like I'm going to go any minute. Well, they don't give you two weeks' notice, you know. Every man should make out a will. Okay, I'll make it out tomorrow. You say it, but you won't do it. Get up now. Do it now. What? Go on, get up, and make out a will. Well, you're out of your mind. In the first place, a will isn't legal unless you have two witnesses. And in second place, I haven't got anything to leave in the first place. Nobody is going to take anything, and I don't need a will. You are the most stubborn man that ever lived, John. Why? Why am I stubborn? It's the hardest thing in the world to make you admit I'm right when you know I'm wrong. There's a woman's logic for you. Suppose I do make out a will, and nobody can touch anything besides you. Okay, so now... You've got it all, my worldly goods. First thing you know, you'll get over your grief, marry a guy without a dollar to his name like that broken-down snore specialist, Dr. Hershey. Oh, I'm not going to marry anybody. 
He'll give up his practice, take you for every penny, my hard-earned money. He'll drive around my brand-new car, drink my bourbon, <laughs> loaf around like the French, never do a day's work. Why don't you make the bum get a job, Blanche? And then screaming like that. Push up and go to sleep. Go to sleep, she tells me. I'm a nervous wreck. She practically walks me into a funeral. Mary's a doctor behind my back. Now she tells me to go to sleep. <sighs> I'll never sleep another wink as long as I... John, the telephone. The telephone. Answer no. it! No. Who, who the dickens is calling? Who moved the phone, Blanche? What'd you get up for? It's right on the night table beside your bed. I thought I was... Uh, hello? Mrs. Renesis? This is your maternity nurse. You can get ready now. I'm bringing your baby in. What? Blanche, how long have I been here? Isn't he 413? I don't know what this is, but I'm not feeding any babies. A way to run a hospital. It's just a mistake, John. No, I shouldn't have fallen for this operation deal. I could be so comfortable at home in my own bed. One of us should have stayed there. What for? How do you know a prowler won't break in? I left a whole bottle of bourbon on the dresser. Nobody will break in. The turkey would gobble and scare him away. The turkey would gobble? I can just see... Turkey? What turkey? Well, I was going to surprise you. I won a turkey in a raffle, John. You've got a live turkey running around the house? He isn't running around. I've got him tied to your bed. On my bed? What'd you do that for? I'll have the whole thing full of feathers. What'll we do with a live turkey? Well, it's Thanksgiving tomorrow, John, and I thought you'd murder him for dinner. I'm not going to murder any turkeys. But if he lays a beak on my bourbon, I'll chop his head off. Blanche, you're the most impossible woman that ever lived. Oh, I'm sorry, John. I guess everything I do is wrong. I'll go home and put the turkey out. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Never mind. I didn't mean to holler. Let's go to sleep so I can feel good for the operation. I don't think I want you to have it. What's the least I can do for you? Kept you awake all these years with my snoring, and when Dr. Hershey gets through with me, I'll be as quiet as a mouse. But if you stop snoring, I'll never wake you up, will I? No. And if I don't wake you up, we won't fight, will we? That's right. Well, that settles it. I'm not going to let him operate, John. Why not? It's the only chance I get to talk to you. Come on, we're going home. I give up.
you pilots get off of my lawn? We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here.